Welcome to Reinventing Solidarity, a podcast of the journal New Labor Forum and the School of Labor and Urban Studies at the City University of New York. My name is Paula Finn, podcast host and editor of New Labor Forum. The Reinventing Solidarity podcast features scholars, activists, and artists on the front lines of movements for social and economic justice. We ask the essential and often provocative questions about race, class, gender, and the role of organized labor and social justice organizations in the work of creating a radically different world, a world with solidarity, equality, and sustainability at its heart. In this work of creating a more just and sustainable world, which strategies hold the most promise for overcoming the enormous obstacles inherent in 21st century capitalism? A recent book published by the New Press titled Practical Radicals, Seven Strategies to Change the World tackles this question head on. The book's authors, Deepak Bargava and Stephanie Luce, participated in a recent forum sponsored by the School of Labor and Urban Studies that is the basis for this episode. Both authors serve as faculty at the School of Labor and Urban Studies and have long histories of involvement in labor and community-based movements. The forum was moderated by Cristina Jimenez, a MacArthur Fellow and founder of United We Dream. We turn now to Cristina, who opens this spirited discussion held in front of a packed audience. So I want to get started with why did you write this book? And let's let's start with you, Deepak, and then we move to Stephanie. So to be really honest, I was angry when I wanted to first wanted to write the book. I had left, um, and I'm not sure how much the anger comes through in the in the book, hopefully it is agitational, but what I was frustrated with was the quality of strategy that I was seeing in many progressive circles that I was part of. It wasn't like somebody else was screwing it up. I was part of, part of this whole thing. And so it, it kind of came about in lots of ways. It manifested in a lot of ways. You know, I would see campaign plans with 20 parts and no choices. I would see actions that were kind of recycled because somebody done the same action five years ago, but the target never knew the action happened, had no effect on their behavior whatsoever. I know none of you have had any, any um, experiences like this. I had the experience of like a wild overestimation of the power that we had in our organizations, which led to all kinds of bad decisions. Um, and a lot of reactivity, like what's the next crisis, as opposed to what's our plan for governing power for really challenging systems of white supremacy and patriarchy and capitalism in this country. So, um, so one part of it was frustration. Um, another part of the motivation was really love. And um, as I came into contact with more and more emerging and young activists, through LDSJ, here at SLU, I was really struck by the extent to which, like the whole lineage of 
of being a practical radical was not being transmitted in any kind of systematic way. And I'd had the privilege over, over my career of being exposed to many of the strategies that we talk about in the book, but a lot of people were coming into movement being taught, well, there's only one way to do social change, it's the way that I'm teaching it, and everything, everything else is not worth learning, or they weren't getting much of it at all. Not much political education, background in the theory and history, and the lineage, right, those, those thousands of years of people before us who fought for justice and all the wisdom they have, that's our inheritance. And I felt like I wanted to find a way to um, make some of that inheritance, that lineage, more accessible to more people. And then the last piece is just curiosity. Um, so I often think it's like a miracle that underdogs, oppressed people ever win, given what we are up against and the forces we face. And actually, we often do win big things. How? Like, how do we do that? And genuine curiosity. Um, and then I had a particular passion and curiosity about how does the other side do strategy? So I did a deep dive, which maybe we'll talk about later, into um, how corporations approach it and how it's done in the military and in politics. And so all of that was kind of the stew of some, some anger, some righteous anger, feeling like we could do better, we needed to do better, our people deserve better, some love and some real curiosity. Thank you for that deep back. What about for you, Stephanie? Uh, well, I had some similar feelings, but um, I would say also I was born, I'm a gen, I think ex, gen Xer. I was born at a time where most of my political life was losing. That's what we did. We just went in the streets and we lost, and we lost and lost and lost. But then in the 2000, 2010s, things seemed like to start to shift. We had the Occupy upsurge. We had the Bernie upsurge. We had the Movement for Black Lives. So a real spark of this is what winning might look like. Um, and in fact, in my last sabbatical around 2016, I went around the world to study some major victories that workers were winning in other countries. But then all of these hit major backlash, like the right mobilized and mobilized hard to begin to crush these victories. And I, and I really thought, you know, we've learned to fight, but we haven't learned to think long-term, to anticipate what's coming next, to think five steps ahead, what are we planning for for 10 years and 20 years and not just a defensive fight and not just waiting for a next upsurge, but how are we gonna capitalize on the next upsurge and really make something of it? So when Deepak suggested this idea of the strategy class uh, to me and Penny, I was, um, I was like, I don't know. Clearly I'm good at losing, but I don't know. Let's try it. There's a lot to learn and uh, we need to be talking about this. So. And I am so glad, Stephanie, that you say yes to join the adventure. Um, because I think this book is really timely. You know, I feel like often in our movement spaces, we have uh, false dichotomies, right? Like you're either a practical leader or strategist, or you're a radical. And so I want to follow up with you on this, Deepak. What is a practical radical? Yeah, you know, I had an experience now that the book is out, and I was holding the book on a street corner and putting it in my bag, and someone walked by, and they said, practical radical, that doesn't exist. <laughs> all the practical people get stuff done. Radicals don't do that. And all the radical people, well, 
They're radical. They're not really concerned about winning. And we beg to differ, right? We beg to differ. We think the whole history of the country has really been written by practical radicals. People who like lived in the world as it is, right? They were totally sober about what they were up against. They didn't tell themselves any fantasies about it. They had a real analysis, real power analysis of it. But they also had a vision of a liberated, free future. And then they were like, okay, well, here's these two things, right? There's the hard reality, and then there's this vision of freedom. How do we get from point A to point B? And, and that's strategy. And I feel like that tradition is the tradition of winners. It's the tradition many of us associate ourselves with. And it's one that needs to be like revived and taught. Um, it's a proud tradition. And we contrast it in the book to two other kind of archetypes, like the pure pragmatist, who like when you come up with an idea, they kind of say, no, that'll never work, yeah. right? We just got to paint within the lines, do what's possible, what the politics allow us to do. And then we contrast it to the utopians, who can paint a picture of where we need to go, but then you're like, okay, sibling, love you. How are we gonna get there? And then they get awful quiet. So the practical radical is a third crucial path. It's like the lineage we wanted to bring up in the book. Um, and I wanna then you know, move a little bit then now to talk about the role of power. And in the book, you focus on a few sources of power. Can you share with us how you define power in the book and how does it relate to the process of strategy development? Yeah, so this was a real challenging part of the class. We went every uh, semester, revised this over and over. Penny Lewis and I, uh, in the beginning, were really like digging in the academic literature. Um, lots of people have written about power and theorized uh, academics and activists and organizers all a lot of really useful thinking. And so we had to think what is the most useful to distill in terms of um, teaching this class to organizers, people who can put these ideas into practice. Some of those theories of power really have focused traditionally on kind of power from above and they're important, but they can feel alienating and demobilizing. So we also wanted to think about power for liberation. Um, we ended up relying on um, kind of amalgamation of um, a couple of sociologists, my former, uh, my advisor, Eric Wright, and Michael Mann, and kind of using a combination of their ideas and adjusting some of the terms in a way that was a little less academic and made a little more sense in the organizing arena. I'm not gonna go into a lot of detail because we don't have time. One of the main ones we talk about is solidarity power, which you know some academics call associational power, but we call it solidarity power, the power that comes from numbers, that works, that comes from us sticking together, all of us in this room, or as coworkers, as neighbors, our power to stick together, um, which includes the power to care for one another as well. We talk about disruptive power, which is the power to shut things down. A lot of times we do symbolic marches and protests. Those can be important, but disruptive power is really stopping things from happening, like UAW uh, workers going on strike. And then we talk about the power that comes in the realms of ideological power 
economic power, political power, and military power. And I'm not going to go into detail on those, but the idea here is that these are not mutually exclusive. They can rest on one another. For example, to pull off a disruptive strike, you often need to have um, a lot of solidarity power, right? Just because you're positioned strategically in the economy doesn't mean you're going to co-workers co will stick together. And then some of these can be used to build other forms of power. If you have a lot of solidarity power, you may be able to, may be able to leverage it into political power, into a political movement. That, you know, these are the different forms of power that both those in who are in the status quo, the overdogs, can utilize these, and also us as underdogs can utilize these. So that is where we start the class thinking about the kinds of power that both sides have, and then how is that going to inform our strategy? I want to stay on this topic because I could not agree more with you, Deepak, when you started with your remarks that I often also have found myself in movement spaces where we are completely underestimating our power or overestimating our power. And, you know, Stephanie, when you were laying out the sources of power, one of the things that I took away from the class when we were co-teaching together that we have to really understand our power in order to develop good strategy. And if you don't understand that, that you know, sets you off in a completely different direction for strategy development. But what is strategy, Deepak? And hard question, are strategies born or made? We define strategy in the book as a plan to achieve a goal. So you have to have vision under conditions of uncertainty. So actually, you have very little control, right? You have a limited amount of control, and you have to understand the environment. With limited resources, so you have to make choices about time, people, money, right? You have to be disciplined about making choices. And then facing opposition, so meaning you have to understand who is actually uh, your opponent in a situation. So a plan to achieve a goal under conditions of uncertainty with limited resources facing opposition. And um, we think of strategy as like a bridge. So it's a bridge between the world as it is, the world with oppression in all its forms that we see operating today, and the world as it could be or should be, the world of our dreams that strategy is the way we, we get from one of those places to the other place. And we had a lot of conversation about this question of where should strategy come from? Where does strategy come from? And we take a ethic in the book that I would call like a small d democratic ethic that the best strategy is developed by large groups of people. And you know, in popular culture, we get this story that it's Elon Musk right, who's the genius. I know this crowd is not particularly inclined to believe that. Or Jeff Bezos, right, that, that's kind of this, this individual, often a white man, and that's not true. Great strategy is actually the product of groups, and it's something that can be developed. We can get better at it with practice. And I had an experience I talk about in the book where I had a mentor who, when I was working, as some of us do, you know, 70 or more hours, who said, I want you to meet with two people a week who have nothing to do with the campaign you're working on. I was kind of like, really? Really? But I did it. So I met with nurses and home care aides and architects and all kinds of people. And the lesson in that was like, what would it be like to expand your horizon of your imagination to think about a campaign like an architect? 
or to think about what the care in a community meeting is the way an amazing nurse does, that experience of care, that there's genius there that can be part of your, you can get better at this by practicing. So we give a whole variety of tools on how individuals can get better at strategy. And then we, um, building on the work of Marshall Gans and others, we talk about how do you get better at strategy in a team, right? Because mostly we do work in a team and there are actually ingredients for what it takes for a high functioning strategic team that can come up with these creative breakthroughs. So one of the big punchlines of the book is that if we want to win freedom, liberation, justice, we need to make a massive investment in the capacity, the already existing capacity of everyday people, working class people, to participate in designing the strategies for their liberation. And that's why LDSJ is so important to us and why these opportunities are so important to us that great strategists are made. They are not born. Wow, so powerful. Thank you. So, you know, in the book, you go through the sources of power and, you know, ask good strategists. You'll really need to understand what's the power you got, what's the power that you don't. So what are the seven strategy models that you lay out in the book? And that's a question for, you know, both of you. Okay, so we'll, we'll talk about, we might not get through all seven, but the first one we start with is uh, what we call base building, what people call base building, which is really the fundamental strategy that underlies all other strategies. And again, that's the strategy that relies on solidarity power, the strategy that's working together in numbers to make change. So the most classic examples of base building are community organizing and labor unions. And so in the book, we write about Make the Road New York, which some of you all are here, which is so exciting. And we write about the St. Paul Federation of Educators, a labor union in Minnesota. And so this strategy is one that maybe people know the most, the idea of making change by coming together in numbers. Another strategy we write about in the book is what we call narrative shift. And to be honest, this is the one I think Deepak and I struggled with a lot because I think he and I have seen this done in a very sloppy way or a shallow way where people might think, okay, we just put out enough tweets, we're going to change the world, or if we're going to put out slick commercials, some, some of the unions we work with will be like, let's just spend a lot of money for some slick ads, and that's narrative shift. And we really learned a lot actually from you, Christina, about narrative shift is really deeper than that. It's about really listening to people, understanding how they understand the world, and uh, working together to make meaning uh, with one another. How do we understand who we is? How do we understand our history? Where are we going? How do we think about what our goals are? And we relied on people like Antonia Gramsci and Stuart Hall, great theorists who did work in this narrative shift tradition, and then relying on great campaigns. We write a bit in the book about Occupy Wall Street and the marriage equality movements as ways that really built on narrative power to make narrative shift possible. So two other strategies we talk about in the book are disruption, and we had the, really the honor of having Francis Fox Piven come and teach our classes and kind of explain disruption to all of us. It was a very powerful experience. She really shows how everyday people do have power. They have the power to stop oppressive systems from functioning by withdrawing their consent. But a very important thing that, about disruption is disruption is not the same as protest. Most protests don't actually stop the systems from functioning. They may have other uses. They may raise attention about an issue. They may build passion. But they don't really actually stop, say, 
racism from occurring day to day. And not all disruption is noisy. So the, arguably the greatest act of disruption in American history, the general strike by enslaved people, which was written about by W.E.B. Du Bois, was stealthy, strategic, brought, helped to bring down slavery, but it was, it was deeply disruptive of the system of slavery. So disruption as a key kind of source of power that we argue in the book is actually underused today, and it's a tradition that needs to be kind of strengthened. Now, the UAW strike and many of the others are showing its potential to deliver real victories for oppressed people. Another strategy we talk about is called collective care, and I'm so delighted Walter is here because actually the inspiration for including this in the book was Walter Barrientos, um, a student and a very acclaimed activist in his own right, who pointed out to us that um, all around the world, oppressed people, in this case he raised the context of indigenous people in Guatemala, developed strategies to hold the community together, to build bonds of care with one another, that then enable resistance to happen. So, you know, not all care is inevitably strategic. Care is everywhere, but care can be like a fundamental part of a strategy for social change. And in the book, we look at this case of the early AIDS crisis. So a lot of people kind of say, well, AIDS began in 1981. There really nothing happened until 1987, and ACT UP burst on the scene. And that's not true. There was like a mass movement of queer communities caring for one another when mainstream society would not. And through that process of like thousands and thousands of people volunteering, becoming buddies, et cetera, identities changed, consciousness changed, militancy emerged, and there was kind of this re relationship between the care and the disruption. In fact, ACT UP activists would get cared for at some of those organizations like GMHC, and it sustained the struggle. I won't talk about the others too much, just to mention the other three strategies, electoral change, and here we're talking about it not like campaigns centered on candidates, but electoral change as a strategy to build power for communities, for black folks, for Latin folks, for working class people, et cetera. So how do you engage in elections in a way that builds stronger organizations and movements? We talk about momentum, and I notice Lissy is somewhere here, and maybe yes, some other folks from Momentum, but kind of this effort to think about how to spark large-scale popular mobilization to change the frame on an issue, things like the Sunrise Movement, or in the book we profile 350.org and the divestment campaign, and then inside-outside campaigns. So these are campaigns that bring legislators and movements together to push the boundaries of what's possible and really win concrete material gains. And we talk about the fight for 15 and a union in Chicago as an example of that. So lots more detail, but those are the seven. Yeah. For all of the, the really good stories there, what I really appreciate is the work that both of you did to go out in the field and really engage. I mean, you were part of some of those campaigns but you also went and really engaged with practitioners, organizers, and the examples are really, really helpful in the book. You know, I want to connect this a little because I would love your perspective about the moment that we're in. So we are, you know, facing multiple crises, growing authoritarian forces, climate disaster that has become, you know, part of our daily lives, growing economic inequality, racial injustice, 
And as we speak, the world is witnessing a moment of so much violence and pain in the Middle East that I believe is having massive implications in the now, but also in the future. So what concerns you and what makes you hopeful about the ability of social justice movements here in the US to meet this moment? Yeah, it's a very big moment in history. And you know, in the book, we talk about this as a time of rupture, meaning we kind of make the case that maybe, we debated this, maybe we're still debating it, I'm not sure, but that this paradigm of racial neoliberalism we've been living with is on shaky ground and under attack from both the right and the left, and that this next decade is perhaps when a new system will emerge. So it's like a pivotal, pivotal time in history, and that's kind of our, our framework. From my perspective, one of my concerns is, do we see the threat of authoritarianism clearly enough, and are we adjusting enough to, to how serious that existential threat is for us. If you take it seriously, then you think, well, it implies a whole set of things for strategy, right? It means you have to build a much broader tent, kind of a popular front approach to bring lots of people in, that recruitment becomes really important, that sectarianism, actually like fighting with people who you agree with about 99% of things, but disagree about, I know no one here ever does that. <laughs> But you disagree about 1%? What are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about, right. <laughs> That's actually dangerous. It's not just a bad thing to do, it's actually dangerous. And so we talk in the book about um, Weimar Germany and um, the really bad decision made by left parties to fight each other and to prioritize that fight rather than prioritizing the fight against fascism. So, you know, do we have a shared analysis is a concern I have about this historical moment and what it calls on us to do. And I would recommend Steve Phillips is in the audience, his book, How to Win This Civil War that we're in, I think is an excellent way of thinking about the threat of authoritarianism, which is not new. It points out this is a continuing battle through American history. I'll just mention a couple of the other concerns, like the thing about investing systematically in the strategic capacity and brilliance of everyday people, are we doing that at scale enough? How are we navigating this wave of internal conflict in our movements and our organizations? And we have a chapter about what's underneath that, how do we get at that, how do we solve for that? And then lastly, do we have enough what we call strategy hubs? Places where people working across these different traditions, these different seven traditions, can come together and make meaning of the landscape. Because we need all of them and we need them to be in strategic relationship with each other. So then what gives me hope is the fact that miraculously, well actually not miraculously, by virtue of great strategy, we are winning in a whole variety of arenas. Winning a battle of ideas, the California fast food victory, the UAW strike, so many of them, and the progress that's been made in states like Georgia and Arizona that we talk about in the book, like enormous due to incredible, brilliant strategy. And then I think I take faith from the fact that in this moment of rupture, it's like we have the capacity to make things anew. It doesn't have to be this way. It can be different. And I feel like there's an awakening that has begun that we can accelerate that will take us to a better future far faster than we might think is possible. Well, in terms of the concerns, I. I 
won't go on too long because there's so many and um, what deep access is right. I mean, I will say in this moment, we're really seeing the ways in which many of us don't even agree about the basic history of, uh, you know, basic facts of history with our own families, with, with our communities. And that makes it really hard to build trust and build community. And so, you know, I think it's a moment where people are really afraid. There's just a lot of fear. There's a lot of pain. Um, and that makes people sometimes really defensive and less willing to work together, when in fact the only way we can survive is through collective action and sticking together. And so I think that concerns me. Some of our traditional ways of building collectivity have been hindered due to the pandemic. We don't have as many collective spaces for union meetings, for classrooms or workspaces. People have retreated more into the home and that's just really just gonna spiral downward and move us away from the collectivity that we need. In terms of hope, I think that what's exciting is that this book is emerging also in the context of a lot of other people having this same kind of conversation. I've been having this conversation with many comrades in, in organization Left Roots and Left Spaces, where people are talking about strategy, uh, Left Labor, people are talking about strategy, people, really smart activists from like Momentum and different organizations are really digging deep and, and taking themselves really seriously about what it means to be a strategist. And I just can't explain to you the joy that comes from teaching our class to see Students from different sectors and traditions come together and learn from one another. The labor organizers in the room with environmentalists, the racial justice activists with housing activists, uh, not that they're mutually exclusive, but to say like, oh, that's how you guys do it in your field. That's interesting, I have something to learn. And big creative ideas come up and people, you could just see like a wilted a plant coming to life with the, the knowledge and the comradeship of working together. So there's a real thirst out there to go deeper and take ourselves seriously and change this world for the better. Want to move to you, Deepak. What are some of the lessons that you bring from the opposition, from the right? Yeah, well, I, I went down a dark, dark path there for a while, you know, sitting in on trainings at the Army War College or trying to understand the architects of the moral panics, you know, these moral panics about trans rights and CRT and so forth, like how are they designed, where do they come from, what's, the, what's that lineage, that very dark lineage, and trying to like get underneath it all. And I guess I have two key conclusions. One is there are some things we can ethically borrow from our opponents. So, you know, there's a lot of work on the right around psych ops and, you know, around kind of mental and moral warfare. Demoralizing your opponent and confusing your opponent is a really big theme. Um, you can think about the efforts to disorganize the Women's March as kind of an example of that and through disinformation and and so forth. It's a huge theme. It's like, it's really- And Russia big. getting involved. And Russia getting involved, <laughs> exactly. Like, um, and it's happening now in ways we don't even necessarily fully understand, I think. And some of that is possible on, on our side. I had this anecdote that you may remember, Christina, from one of the immigrant rights marches, which has just always stuck out to me. I was on stage, it was a huge march, and I got a call from the crowd saying that we had a mime down. And I was like, what? By mime, do you mean somebody in white face paint who doesn't talk and kind of makes funny gestures? And they're like, yes, we have a mime down. We're going to take him to the hospital. 
And I was like, okay, you gotta break this down for me. But the story was that um, some brilliant activists had um, gotten a group of mimes to put themselves in between undocumented immigrant leaders and white supremacist groups that they know would infiltrate. And so the white supremacist groups tried to get in front of the TV cameras. The mimes would kind of do this whole thing. <laughs> the white supremacists got really pissed. And so one of them decked the mime. They got arrested. The white supremacists were made to go away. Anyway, it's a small example of like the kind of genius of some of that. Um, and then just one other quick thing I'll say is divide and conquer, which we're all familiar with, right? The effort to divide people of color against each other, divide workers at the workplace. I mean, this is like the standard repertoire. But one thing that was so interesting to me in researching the book was we usually think we win based on just how strong our side is. That's kind of our usual view. We get bigger base, stronger, stronger, stronger. And that's true. But the other way we win is by dividing the opposition. And so the research that um, we looked at around the iconic, brilliant campaign to bring down segregation in Birmingham, I'll do the short story of this. You know, we usually think of it as like a moral effort, and it was. But the story that's told in most history books is like people appeal to the morality of white people in the North, and that helped bring segregation down. And that's not actually the true story. It was a brilliant strategy by black communities, first building unity, but then dividing the white power structure against itself through boycotts and disruption that forced a settlement. And if you look at history, the victories we win are often almost as much or as much about really understanding your opposition and dividing them as it is about uniting our side. And that was like a big aha moment. That's their strategy all the time. It can be our strategy more of the time. As we think about the authoritarian coalition, it's not a monolith. There are lots of pieces to it. It can be divided. So those are just some of the things. It's a lot more, but those are a couple of things. So juicy. So for both of you, but I would love to start with you, Stephanie. You know, there's a lot in this book. I love it. I recommend it. Everyone who is an organizer, strategist in the movement should have it. But what do you want the readers to take away? Yeah, that's a good question. I think some of the things that, you know, I spent a long time thinking that the strategy you chose was somehow a, a reflection of your morals, like you're a good person if you're doing base building and you're a sellout if you do electoral work or, you know, these kinds of things. But, you know, I think really studying it more and being serious about it is like you can always hold your values and the strategy you choose is, it's, it's about building power, right? And it's not immoral to build power. In fact, we have a responsibility to build power. It means often, sometimes it might mean a difficult compromise, it might mean a tense alliance, but in fact, we need to be realistic, evaluate the moment and think about the power we have and the power we need to build and which strategy is appropriate for that. And I think what I also like for people to take away is this idea of bringing together this idea of movement cycles. You know, my comrade and mentor, Dan Clausen, wrote about this idea of the next upsurge and how movements change over time. Other people have talked about that. And my, uh, my advisor, Eric Wright, talked about movement ecosystems. But bringing those together is thinking about how not one organization can do everything. You're part of an ecosystem and you have a contribution to make. Each of the strategies might have a strength and a weakness within an ecosystem at the time and over time. So certain strategies are more effective at certain points in history. And thinking about those intersections is how the strategies and forms of power come together. And 
what I want the reader to take away is you don't need to do it all, right? It's not just up to you or your organization. We're in this together. That's the only way we're going to make transformative change is doing this together and understanding our role in that larger system. Would you like to add anything? Yeah, well, I'll kind of go back to where I started, which is um, being morally right is not enough, right? We need to play to win, and playing to win means wanting power, so not being averse to power, right? Power is always bad. No, we actually need it to accomplish justice. And we need strategy. And we need rigorous strategy. And we need to debate strategy in our movements. And we need to get better at it. Second thing is, as I said before, there are these lineages that are hundreds of years old. They are our inheritance. They're beautiful. They're inspiring. Reading about how people overcame these odds is like just an extraordinary source of power for us, and we need to connect to lineage and to that sense of long time. And then the last thing is doing all this reading and research, like yes, we have it hard, but people have had it way harder than we have had it, and they have won, and we can win. Truly believe that. For all of, all of us who are practitioners in the field, organizers, strategists, campaigners, the book also has lots of tools that you can use with your groups, in your organizations. And very soon, we will have a study guide. It's up. Oh, it is up. On the LDSJ website. Um, just to close, I know that you're already thinking about the long term. I mean, part of this book is really pushing our movement to think, and our movements to think in that way. So if you think of this book as a building block, what's next from your perspective and from your roles? perhaps, in movement? Well, what I am going to do is follow whatever Deepak says. <laughs> yeah, he, he has uh, ha contributed so much to our movements by creating LDSJ and creating these um, classes and these ideas for these the book. So that is one thing. And obviously, we're going to continue to build here at CUNY, at SLU. It, it's in conjunction with LDSJ. It's the idea of training ourselves as strategists building the next generation or not it does not not only young people people in their retirement come to classes here too but the generation of people who are going to be on the front lines fighting and and building a stronger movement so i think that's one of the things we're committed to here it means both the educational aspect of the classes the research and also thinking of this perhaps as a, a strategy hub as we talked about bringing together people cross movement to think long term and apply some of these tools well, I would be remiss if I didn't say the best, one of the best collaborations of my life has been with Stephanie Luce, and you should all be so lucky as to have a chance to work with her. She's just a genius. She really is. So I think Stephanie said earlier that we're not like intending this as like the last word. It's supposed to be part of a conversation that is happening in lots of parts of movement, and so we don't know all the answers about what to do with all the crises we face together. We do think there are some methods. And so I think it's our hope we'll be able to participate and begin to gather some people across some different traditions to look at these things together, to begin to develop some shared analysis, to foster some relationship building across some different lines that might enable some new horizons of, of action. And I think my greatest hope for what might come out of the book is that it will stimulate like so many more people to get obsessed with strategy and teaching strategy and democratizing strategy and making it like just part of 
the everyday fabric in every house meeting and church basement that this is what's happening. This is what we're doing, that we're like liberating people's strategic imagination because it's there, the genius is there in communities and um, yeah, if this can be a little bit of a spark or an ember to get it going, that would be amazing. Thank you for that, both of you. That's so powerful. The genius is in all of us. Yes. Yeah, so a round of applause for our authors, Stephanie. Issues like those raised in today's podcast are taken up in classroom discussions at the School of Labor and Urban Studies, where our preeminent faculty and engaged and diverse student body grapple with the most pressing challenges confronting organized labor and working class communities. For more information about the school, visit slu.cuny.edu. To learn more about the podcast and listen to other episodes, visit slu.cuny.edu slash podcast. And to subscribe to New Labor Forum or sign up for our free monthly newsletter, visit newlaborforum.cuny.edu.